Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, a podcast for readers who want something strange and exciting and writers who need something new. If you want to support this podcast, please consider buying my new book, The National Gallery. I'm extremely proud of this book because it may be my best book, and it is certainly my most personal and heartfelt book. But just because I say it's heartfelt doesn't mean it isn't full of weirdness, like sonnets about Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and elegies for my dead iPhone. Uh, For a limited time, if you buy a copy of the National Gallery directly from me, I will sign it, and I will also send you a signed copy of my previous book, The Politics of Knives, for no additional cost. So you can order the book and get your free book uh, with it at thenationalgallery.ca. That's thenationalgallery.ca. I'm also excited because it is my 10-year anniversary as an author. My first book, Ex Machina, was published in October 2009, and to celebrate, uh, now that it is 2019, as I record this, I've made Ex Machina available as an ebook for the first time. It was never available as an ebook previously, uh, and I'm giving that ebook away for free at jonathanball.com/freebook. So, uh, go to jonathanball.com/freebook, and you can sign up, uh, get all my ex- exciting news uh, when it's you know exciting and new uh, and other free resources that I'll just you know send you as I create them uh, plus a free book um, and again you can go to the nationalgallery.ca uh, if you want to find out more about my new book uh, and get a free uh, book as well when you order that so three two free books and a paid book <laughs> available to you in any case um Let's get into the show. This is the first of a two-part series with Nathan Duick, where we talk about parenting and productivity, trying to get some writing done uh, in your life when you have you know, children. Um, although I want to just note, if you don't have children, that a lot of what we're talking about is going to be applicable to your situation. You'll just have different challenges. Uh, you know, a lot of the challenges with children are very specific, but there are some kind of general challenges uh, that I think you know more broadly applicable, like just the problem of you know trying to create and hold time for your art practice when you know you have these competing demands from the outside. Um, so again, this is first of a two-part uh, interview, and after that, we are going to have a bit of a hiatus. I'm going to go on a bit of a break with the podcast uh, because behind the scenes, I'm doing a lot of retooling uh, of various things, and I'm trying to get ready to launch some really major, uh, massive, you know, fascinating. I hope for you uh, projects in 2020. A lot of exciting stuff coming down the pipe in 2020, but I will tell you more about that in the new year uh, after a little bit of a hiatus break uh, where you can go back and you'll catch up on the podcast that you've missed. Uh, so subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Uh, you know, Go to writingtherongway.com if you want to you know, find the link or find more episodes. Uh, try to subscribe to that. Uh, and sign up for the newsletter at writingtherongway.com uh, as well. Uh, and you'll be the first to hear, you know, about some of the exciting stuff that I've got planned for 2020. But first, uh, here is the interview, first of two parts, interview with Nathan Duick. I'm talking to Nathan Duick, uh, and Nathan uh, is the author of a very special episode, among other books. But his new one is a very special episode out of Woolsack and Win. And can you tell me a, a, a bit about the book, Nathan? Like I've read the book, but you know, tell people what. <laughs> A very special episode is, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the book, but then we'll move into the topic for today, which uh, Nathan and I are both kind of similarly struggling with, which is how to be a writer, and, you know, and put out books like you know a very special episode uh, when you have kids <laughs> and you have a life and a family, and you know just these other obligations outside of writing, which I think we were talking a little while ago about how it's a really under discussed topic. Um, but even if, and even if you don't have kids, like how do you get that writing to fit inside your life? Um, but before we get to that, can you tell us about a very special episode? Well, we'll get to this in a second. Uh, thank you, Jonathan, uh, for having me. This is uh, I'm a long time first time and it's a real privilege to be uh, on the podcast. Now when I am exercising, I'll hear my own voice in my ears. <laughs> um, 
A very special episode is actually a really good hinge to talk about the issue of maintaining a writing practice while being a parent because the book arose from my thoughts in the process of becoming a parent. So uh, when my wife and I, my wife is named Sharon, I'm going to just call her Sharon from now on. When Sharon and I were considering having children, um, I had to spend a little bit of time thinking uh, about what this meant to me, um, evaluating my relationship with my father uh, in fear that I was going to have a boy, wound up having two of them. (laughs) And uh, part of the evaluation process included what were the primary influences on me as a child that formed me into the barely functioning adult that I've become. And of them... Uh, fundamentalist slash evangelical Christianity was number one, uh, but close behind was television because I was uh, addicted to the tube at a very young age. Uh, it was a different time and place, and this was before the internet, so this was my portal into the world. And so, in the process of you know introspection, I spent some time watching the TV that I watched as a, a kid and realized there's a lot. To mine here, and it's not just nostalgic, good time uh, reveling in the oldies. It actually became a, a very, very engaging process of remembering why I have these dreams or where that memory comes from, and why is it possible for me to still remember the jingles and the theme songs for the shows that I watched as a youngster. And so that was it. It, it began purely as a self-indulgence and um, a flight of fancy. And I started taking notes and realized that I could do more with these notes and decided I was going to make a book that honored 1980s pop culture, specifically televisual culture. And I tied it to my other real passion in writing, which is parody, which is often misunderstood and, and overlooked as a, a critical and intellectual engagement with a text. And a very special episode was the result. A freewheeling, hopefully enjoyable, uh, I don't know, TV guide. <laughs> or maybe we can call it a um, coffee table book of the 1980s as perceived by a precocious slash slightly obnoxious white kid from southern Manitoba. <laughs> Now, this all that stuff you're talking about is really near and dear to my heart because similarly, you and I are about the same age. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and we started school. I, I I think we started the same year. Maybe unless you're a year ahead of me, but um, I think you did. You started '98 as well. Was that uh, yes? Yeah. So you and I started. In fact, I think we met our first or second day at school back in '98. You know what? It was it was literally my third day of university. I can recall it like it was yesterday. It was sure. a, a formative moment in life. You and I were both meeting in the rehearsal space, mm-hmm. taking introductory theater class with Dr. Margaret Groom. And then within months, we were working on scene study together. That's and right. I remember specifically you talking about how much I should watch Tarantino, and I had not watched <laughs> Tarantino. Really? And yeah, it's huh. true. You told me that I have to spend time watching Quentin Tarantino. So on your recommendation alone, I went to a video store because we had them then. And uh, and I watched all of Quentin Tarantino up to 1998, which I think ends with Jackie Brown. Is that right? That sounds right. Yeah. And we were working on a scene study with, with Julie Simpson, who was a, a young woman then, and now relatively, she's the same age as we are, so a middle-aged woman now. And she kept telling me that only only jerk-off guys watch Queen <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so no. she, she inadvertently started directing two jerk-off guys. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I mean, I remember that theater class and, and, and a lot of things. I don't remember that specific, you know, conversation, <laughs> but like, it sounds right. And, and, but anyway, another thing you just said uh, before the internet, uh, that's the thing that I find myself saying all the time as a parent to my older daughter. Um, yep. You know, I, all the time growing up, I'd be like, well, you know, before the internet, with you, this used to happen, this used to happen. Um, and of course, every time I say it, I feel super old. Um, uh, but and then also, like you, I just recently put out a book, uh, poetry, you know, uh, the National Gallery about also, you know, uh, the experience of parenthood and how it connects to, in some way, you know, kind of darker material, but still mm-hmm. like this kind of pop culture material and how, trying to kind of mine my way 
uh, you know, through it. And, and a lot of those same concerns are kind of swirling in my head in the same sort of way. Uh, so just to kind of preface a little bit, um, you know, this kind of discussion of parenting and how to kind of parent and, and, and write as well, um, maybe we should just talk a little bit about like the kind of general life situations that we're in. Sure. So like, in fact, it, it's a good idea. We should actually, we should have started this conversation yeah. with like a caveat or maybe a disclaimer saying that at least I feel this way. I think I can assume you do as well. We live in a lot of privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can say Sharon and I have two healthy children, four and two. Um, they are, um, they're the most important thing to us. I feel honored and privileged to that whatever deity you believe in has entrusted me with his children in his or her or their poor judgment. Um, and, and I'm going to get a little bit cranky in a little while and I'm sure you're going to as well. Uh, and that is not meant to be, uh, it's not meant to be any kind of judgment on, on children or my children specifically. It's not meant to be a way of, uh, I, I should just be more express more gratitude than I do when I'm talking with my my sons. Um, <laughs> they are they are worth more to me than any publication, and I feel like that should go without saying. But I don't say it, and maybe I should say it more often. And I dedicate my books to them, knowing that I would have written more without them, but it wouldn't have mattered as much if I didn't have them. Does that sound? Mm. Uh, no, I understand completely, and I think, and so I like you have two two young children around the same age. So my yeah. kids are they're just the one's just about five, like she'll be five mm-hmm. this month, and, and then the other is three. Um, so very close to your like four and two, you know, five and yep. three. And then I also have an an older daughter with. Uh, we were never married, but I call her my ex. Uh, but she's like almost twenty, like she'll turn twenty, like she's quite a bit mm-hmm. older, right? Yeah. Um, and so. Uh, and, and, you know, it's all been, you know, very difficult in various ways, but also, as you say, like, you know, a real privilege. And I dedicated this most recent book to them and to all the kids. Although my older daughter, Jessie is the one who, uh, is mentioned the most in the book because, uh, she was kind of instrumental in the writing process of it a little bit, which is something, you know, I'm sure we'll uh, get to talking about soon, but, but right now, like you, I'm very much in that similar situation of having kids around this sort of same age. And, um, you know, uh, also, uh, the other thing that's kind of relevant in, in my scenario, uh, so in addition to having the older kid, you know, that doesn't live with me, that, you know, is another sort of relationship, you know, parenting relationship that, you know, you, you got to, I got to manage, um, even though she's like almost 20, you know, it's still like a, you know, it's parenting relationship, you know, forever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it kind of just changes in various ways. But then the other thing to consider for me specifically is I've also got like more or less three jobs. Sure. <laughs> so like yeah. the way that things have worked for me right now is about a third of my time I spend uh, as a contract uh, university professor, you know, teaching creative writing or other things. And then about a third of my time, I'm a creative writer, like about a third of the like you know, money I make or stuff that comes in is connected to creative writing, depending on mm-hmm. like the year and the situations change, but like broadly speaking. And then like a third of my time is like freelance writing. Uh, sure. So in addition to kind of, and, and I'm also like, Generally speaking, I'm like the primary person at home during the day with uh, the kids in, in a lot of, for most days, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, or maybe like half the week, roughly, let's say, if you want sure. to count everything in. Um, but it's like, you know, quote unquote, full-time parenting slash, uh, you know, working three part-time jobs, you know, you know, it's very fractured, which I mm-hmm. think is, um, just kind of go back to your point a little bit, like despite, you know, the glories and wonders of kids and the kind of absolute like privilege I have in various ways, it is very much a fractured life. Uh, and I think that, and, and kids kind of fragment the life further because of course, each of them has their own, even if they're very healthy children who, you know, are well adjusted and everything, like they have their demands. True. Right. And, you know, one of the things I remember, um, I don't know if you had this experience, but like one of the great shocks when you have a kid, I think, is just like, you know, the, the, you, the kid's born, they hand you the kid, you leave the, pl- the hospital and it's like, now you got this kid. And like, you can't <laughs> like just, you, you never don't have the kid. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna just we're gonna I'm checking the privilegeometer here, and looks like uh, <laughs> looks like looks like we're peaking. But yeah. but uh, my my situation is, is somewhat similar to yours. I have a full time gig, and I'm so grateful that in this uh, economic condition that we're in Canada, then I can say that. Uh, uh, my wife is the primary caregiver. Like Sharon is, is number one, uh, because she's at home. She works a very part-time job right now teaching music and I want her to work more because she loves it and she's really good at it. And, uh, she'll tell you it makes her a better person to do it. But I feel the same way at my job. I have a full-time, uh, a paying gig and, and, uh, and then I come home and I want to be a, a dedicated full-time father. Uh, and then I also want to be a dedicated full-time writer and that's three full times in a part-time life uh so so my 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 demands are 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 very are like yours but my demands kind of peak and and uh and they also kind of valley at different times of the year so uh because i teach at at a college uh my my teaching load is very heavy but my summertime load is much lighter so that's when i get my primary work done uh we'll talk about scheduling in a second because i want to hear how you do it well but let me just but, suggest a framework for this discussion sure. a little bit, uh, which, you know, like, so to me, there's, I was thinking about this before we got on this call here, and like, to me, there's like three core problems that just having kids, uh, but also in some way, like other other things cause these same problems, uh, like, but it, I think kids kind of exacerbate existing issues that are always a sure. problem when you're a writer. One um, sure. I think is focus, like being able to, yep. f- having to, uh, to being able to focus on things. Because, uh, like, for me, for example, you know, you're just sitting at home and trying to write and, like, you know, the kid comes up to you and starts talking to you. As a really mm-hmm. simple example, it gets more complicated than that, as you know. <laughs> but, like, yep. as a simple example, like, they can pull your focus like anything can, like your phone ringing yep. can, et cetera. It's just another, you know, thing that is potentially vying for your focus. Uh, except unlike your phone ringing, it's something that deserves your focus, Sure. Uh, uh, there's the time problem, of course. Like, you know, you got so much time in the day, you can't make more. And, you know, you can give it to your kids, you can give it to this, you can give it to that. Um, and so that becomes a challenge, I think, on some levels. Uh, you know, to, you know, you got to focus to write, you got you to find, make time to write. And also, I think in some ways, you got to be motivated to a certain degree to write. Like, sure. Um, I think there's other issues. Uh, maybe you can, like, let me know if there's other big problems. Like to me, the top three problems that I have as a writer are focus, time, and motivation. Um, and I feel oh, like I could, kids enter I could a, add, being a I parent. I could definitely add more. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. What do you? Would you else would you add? Is like the, I'll tell you. I'll actually. Uh, I don't mean to belabor the point because I think we have a pretty good schema for the rest of our conversation. But one of the issues that I found with having children is also my my mental health, uh, not mm. complaining. I, I don't want to sound like I'm whinging here, but my mental health has suffered in the sense that my insecurities have peaked at certain times. Sure. When I, especially when I see my children, both of whom are boys behaving the way that I did. And then I realize, <laughs> Oh boy, they are genetically doomed <laughs> because <laughs> I, I gave them that, like I put yeah. that in there and now they're stuck. And so I find, especially cause I'm low on sleep and I feel my energy is flagging that my insecurities kind of take over. So this may be a, a, maybe a Nathan thing, but insecurities are just, that's, that is number one with me sure. right now. And so when I take a rejection from a journal or when I send out a publication and I don't hear back from them, there are more uh, demonic voices in my head than there could ever be in any editing room <laughs> because they keep telling me, you know what, you're only good at what you're doing. Don't try for anything else. Uh, but that's sure. not a therapy issue that you can deal with, so I'll just put that in my pocket for now. Well, but I think it does connect to, you know, now that you say that, I, I feel like I have a bunch of insecurity that is, you know, exacerbated or comes out of uh, parenting. But it, my, my insecurity is... I mean, I have a lot of insecurities, but they're more specifically related to parenting. Like sure. writing's a thing where I f- don't feel a lot of insecurity. I have almost like a unwarranted overconfidence with my writing, <laughs> <laughs> but I do feel a lot of anxiety uh, that connects to it, and like a lot of insecurity. It's like different things, you know, cause it. So like getting rejection doesn't bother me so much, but. Where it does kind of come into play is I worry about like the financial aspects of it because all of a sudden I need, you know, you you got kids, like as you know, uh, kids are incredibly expensive and they get, uh, you know, more and more expensive as they grow. 
Yeah. And you know, it's, it's just a, a pro like it is a situation where like maybe if you were, you know, you, when you're younger without kids, you can just survive on less money is all there is to it. True. And you know, in addition, just, you know, the survival rate at which you need like money coming in, you also have like, you know, you want to be like not just surviving, like you want to be thinking ahead to like, could I afford to pay you know, to make the life easier for my kid in, in university or whatever. Um, you know, so there's all sorts of things to consider, uh, that, or even she got to make a will now. So now you're thinking more about death. Like <laughs> there's like weird ways. I think that you're right. <laughs> and like insecurity kind of comes in, in, in more concrete ways. Or as you say, you just start to see like your insecurities reflect in the kids in some way or, or what have you. But I feel like that parenting insecurity, like once you let insecurity in one door, it kind of starts to run rampant and can, you know, and, and maybe connect to other things. So like when I get a rejection, a very good point. it doesn't necessarily bother me because I think the writing's bad, but I'll, I'll think like maybe it would be better if, you know, I could have, you know, worked harder on it or maybe it would, you know, I'll be like worried that, you know, what if I don't sell any of this stuff? Where am I yeah. going to get the money for whatever, et cetera? Because I am in a situation where, I one hand I'm very privileged that about, you know, two thirds of my money is coming in from writing. But on the other hand, like it's not enough to make it all the time. Like I'm, you know, it's very unpredictable when money comes in, you know, like it's very, you know, up and down. You're always at the mercy of, uh, the, you know, market in a manner speaking. And if you're doing work like I am, where it's not necessarily the most marketable stuff in the first place, um, you know, it can be difficult. Uh, no, you know what? I, I'm going to just we'll put a footnote on this and then we can like put a pin in it. Yeah. Uh, one of the issues that I found with uh, maintaining a writing practice while uh, attempting to be a good husband and father is also that I am unreasonably fortunate to be married to the woman who I'm married to. I don't understand how she continually uh, looks into my eyes and, and doesn't regret saying I do. Uh, but, but, but one of the things she tells me about this to, to manage insecurity, but also to provide motivation is that, uh, the, the work I do, the work that I think is really valuable is also, it's partly for me in the sense that if I'm writing, I become a more engaged human being who is more perceptive and empathetic because I, I'm, I'm just part of the world. But also the work that I do, it really benefits the few people it does, but it benefits them greatly. Uh, mm-hmm. so it's not, it's not like she keeps reminding me, don't worry about the sales. Uh, although I do worry about them. Worry about worry about the fact that you're putting something into the world that you think actually makes the world a, a better place. And so I am enormously grateful for that because when things get really dark and there's a, a black dog at the door, then I can recall Sharon uh, reminding me of some of our priorities. <laughs> and and so then as a, as a husband and father, I also want to reflect those priorities. I, I want to give her time to do uh, to to do the things that she thinks makes her a more engaged human being, but also try to encourage the bo- our boys are very small, but try to encourage our boys to keep that kind of focus in play, but also, you know, to, to maintain a healthy class struggle and hate the rich. That's also part of our goal. <laughs> well, let's just kind of go back to your, you talked a little bit about, um, kind of the mental health, you know, connection and you know, how insecurity or maybe anxiety and other things play, play yeah. into the writing and, you know, the parenting. I think one issue for me that I, and just, it just kind of get into like the problem and maybe a possible solution, <laughs> you know, is, uh, one thing that I find is a constant issue for me is that I always have, I mean, on one hand, you know, I need to really kind of try to, I really need to make the time for the writing, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because I do think it's a valuable thing to be doing and a good use of my time. But at the same time, you know, like I want, you know, to focus on my family. I don't want the writing to kind of get in their way and to take me away from them, you know, too much and so on. And sometimes I have I have like an anxiety or insecurity around it, like oh you know I'm being too selfish by taking the time to work on this thing, and it, it kind of feels it starts starts to erode my focus because I feel guilty for working on something because I've got that good old you know Catholic guilt if I'm enjoying it it must be bad for me right exactly um, oh precisely but we call but it midnight guilt at this house <laughs> the thing I have to remind myself a lot of the times is that um, um, if I can get the writing done and I get the writing in I am a 
like I don't worry as much in general. Like that, that stuff's out of my head. I can, I sleep better because I don't have stuff wheeling through my head all the time. I can be more present with my family because I've spent my time getting that stuff out of my head. You know what I mean? Like there is like a side that I often will neglect. And I sometimes have, sometimes it helps just to remind myself of the fact that when I do the writing on a regular basis, I'm just a nicer person to be around and I don't have, you know, as, you know, I'm not as, you know, triggered to a temper or, uh, you know, I'm just like more there because Mm -hmm. I haven't got it stuck in my head. I can sleep better. Like there is like a way, I don't know if you have this too, but like for me, like my mental health is better when I'm writing regularly. And even we've done studies into this, like if you are writing creatively on a regular basis or even just journaling on a regular basis, it improves your mental health and stability and your ability to emotionally deal with the world and be present in it. So there's, you know, science to back that up to some degree, but there's also just like, you know, the anecdotal, I know that when I keep a regular writing schedule, I do better in life and my, and I'm nicer to my, to be around and I am a better parent just because I've kind of put my time in with that stuff and it's not pulling at me uh, in the same way. But I but I still will feel guilty in, in doing it. Sometimes yeah. I was just to reframe it a little bit and like to remember like, okay, part of the reason I'm just like, you know, part of the reason you exercise is so you have more energy. Uh, part of the reason like I write is so I have more like presence when I'm not writing. I think I think you put it really well. This is now we're going to check the mutual admiration meter and uh, we're peaking. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but one, but I appreciate the way you phrase this as though, uh, you are more, uh, you're just an easier person to get along with when you feel like you're you know, doing something to perhaps we could say better yourself or just, you know, express yourself. I strongly agree with you. And I can say anecdotally add my anecdote to the pile that, uh, I didn't write, um, between the ages of 24 and 32 and those were the darkest period of my life because I didn't I didn't think it was worth it or that people weren't going to pay attention even if I did it so why bother uh, and so I co-sign every word you said more eloquently than I could put it myself but you know we can actually we can go like I, I really want to talk about time management sure. because that is my primary obstacle uh, right now and so uh, let's let's put down the cards on the table. How do you manage your time to find the minutes, the, the the change, the spare change in the couch to do the writing of the day? You know, honestly, like you know, it it, it goes up and down with the waves of it being a struggle. My big problem with time management. So I'll tell you my big problem, then I'll tell you like the sure. solutions I've found that you know the things that help. My big problem with time management is the fact that I have so many different areas of focus. Like I just sure. don't have one job. I got three jobs. Plus I got these kids. Plus I got you know an older kid outside. You know that doesn't live with me that I want sure. you know be around. Right. Plus I got to like. Um, do all just the normal daily stuff of being alive. You know, you got to figure out if you have money or not. (laughs) You got to like go to the mall. You know what I mean? Like there's just things you have to do. You have to wash the toilet. Like there's just so many things to do. And I don't have, I, I sometimes I kind of wish on one hand, I'm very privileged in that, um, you know, uh, I can do a lot of different things and, you know, survive. But on the other hand, it, like it's very, you know, I have to really compartmentalize and it's difficult and it can be draining and overwhelming to feel like I've got all these things to do. So mm-hmm. there's a few ways that I deal with it when I'm dealing with it well. So I don't always deal with it well, but when I'm dealing with it well, um, the other thing is, of course, teaching, like my teaching schedule, my schedule changes completely, like every few months, yep. you know, and so it just becomes kind of, you know, difficult, you know, in all sorts of ways. Um, but one thing I, that really helps a lot is uh, just, I, every once in a while I'll go into, when I really feel overwhelmed, I go into what I call kill everything now mode or like, <laughs> you know, Ken mode. There's a great metal band called Ken mode. It stands for kill everything now mode. And what I'll do is I'll just stop doing every single thing that I'm doing. I just won't do like anything at all for like a, a day, like a week. Mm-hmm. except what I absolutely have to do, where if I don't do this thing, it will like severely affect my life in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't do anything else. And I'll just, but I'll keep track of what I'm doing and not doing. 
So I'll keep track of like the things I absolutely have to do as a baseline, like to survive and and, and so on. Because I and then I'll keep track of like all the things I want to do, but I'm not, mm-hmm. or like I feel like I should be doing, but I don't actually have to do. And when I do that for like a few days, it helps me get perspective on what I really need to do versus what I just think I need to do. Sure. Right. And it also helps me get perspective and like every, I'll just cancel everything I can cancel. I'll move every deadline that I can move. Like I'll just kind of like try to shut down and I'll actually, even though I'm overwhelmed and super busy, I'll try to get to a point where I'm like literally standing there doing nothing. Um, Mm -hmm. and just sitting there like thinking, okay, what do I act? Do I actually have to do anything? Could I just do nothing? You know, really, if I not just in my head, but objectively like what do I need to do? And so it helps me kind of like sort out what is actually a real priority versus things I just have convinced myself I need to be mm-hmm. doing. Yep. But it also helps me figure out like what's the baseline in terms of like how busy am I uh, before I start adding on things? Because sometimes I find that what has happened is I've, I've added too many things to my plate and I've just overestimated how much time I have. Uh, so it helps me kind of just get a baseline. And then once I have that baseline back, you know, if I've kind of gotten out of control, I'll then start to like schedule things in clumps. So like if I find like every day I'm like cleaning the toilet or something or doing like a bunch of random chores, or like every day I'm working on some email or something, I'll start blocking it. So like I'll do like, okay, well, if, if I'm checking email every day, I'll just check email every three days. Or like mm-hmm. what's the minimum I could get it down to? Like because email's not making me money. You know what I mean? Or, or, or like something like that. Like if I'm teaching prep every like two days or something, I'll just say, well, what if I just did all my teaching prep on a Monday morning and I don't do mm-hmm. any other thing? So like right now I'm doing this recording podcast with you. Um, so uh, this is the first of a, a group of podcast recordings that I'm doing. Uh, but like every once in a while I'll sit there. This, so this is like a related thing is like batching uh, diff- related tasks. So like I'm not sure. doing this today super well, but what I do in the past is like I'll sit and I'll do like a bunch of like, I'll do like 10 recordings. Like I'll, I'll, I'll record like two, three months of podcasts and then I'll just, you know, put them all up and schedule them all out. And then I won't think about podcasts for two, three months. Sure. So like I'm just this is the first podcast I've recorded, even though I'm putting on a weekly podcast for I don't know, however, you know, for almost a year over a year now, with a couple exceptions. But like this is the first time that I've recorded a podcast, Nathan, uh, mm-hmm. since like I recorded one about two, three weeks ago, just on the just when it came to me. But otherwise, I haven't recorded a podcast since uh, middle of October, I think. This better be a good one then. Well, <laughs> but like I've been putting on podcasts. You want to know it, right? Oh, true. I've been keeping in contact with your schedule, and it's every week. Yeah. So, like, I, you know, before Halloween, I was like, rec- if you listen to the one the other week with Lyndon, like, it, I mentioned it, like, it came out in December, and I mentioned, like, well, you know, it's not even Halloween yet, <laughs> but mm-hmm. like, cause, but like, so like, I find like, I'll, but otherwise, what I was doing before that is I was doing a podcast every week, and so I was like, I had this job to do every week. Well, why don't I just do that job ten times on this, like, in two days? And then, like, once every three months. Yep. Uh, it's so much more manageable when you block it like that. So, like, I can't, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, so one mm-hmm. thing is, like, just figuring out what I really need to do versus what I just think I need to do. Uh, another thing is just, like, can I just block those things and, like, mm-hmm. pre-do them? So, like, I'll do my classes that way, too. Like, I'll just make, I was teaching three-hour classes and I was teaching 75-minute classes. And I had, like, I would come up with a new lesson every time. Because uh, the three-hour class is so different, but what I just started doing is I'll just start making like one hour. I started making like seventy-five-minute class sections, and I would just do two of them uh, for a three-hour class. So yep. I just started like doing my lesson prep in a very modular way. Um, I started just trying to really template out things. Uh, probably the biggest thing that's helped me is I, I bought a book called Free to Focus by a guy named Michael Hyatt, and I just like followed like his productivity system as much as I could, and it works surprisingly well. Um, so like, I really recommend that book in particular. But like uh, the other sort of just core just, thing, and people hate when on. I say his this. Name is, his name is Hyatt. Did Michael you say? Hyatt. Okay, Hyatt, gotcha. Um, and it's called Free to Focus. So like when this I'm taking uh, notes. Yeah, like I'll link to it when the show notes for this go up. Great. But um, uh, it's a great, you know, 
productivity kind of system book. It sounds like stupid to say that, but I started like reading productivity system books to just get a handle on my life a little bit at one Mm -hmm. point. Um, But the absolute biggest thing that I do uh, to try to like create time for writing, but not take the time for my family, uh, you know, over much is I just, um, I just don't do things I used to enjoy. So like I stop, I don't really watch TV anymore. I don't have Netflix. I don't have any TV channels. I don't have Disney Plus. I don't have any of that stuff. I've, I've, if you ask me about a television show, I haven't seen it, with like rare exceptions. You're, um, you're I stopped going to me. movies almost. In, I, I just wrote a book about TV, friend. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you wrote a book about 1980s, I, I'm now, TV, right? I'm now an uh, impaled vampire. <laughs> but I, I love TV uh, and I love movies, but I just don't watch TV or go to movies anymore because it, it literally it got to the point. And I, I, I don't really play. I stopped playing video games, although I started playing them again recently because I, I started working for a video game company. As oh, really? A, in a freelance job. Yeah. So, um, but until then, I stopped playing video games like for like 10 years almost like it just got to the point where I just like I could do two of five things mm-hmm. I could you know write read play video games watch TV watch movies and I just cut out watch movies watch TV play video games yeah so now I I'm think starting to I move back into them entered, a little bit I think you and I we've entered into a period that we saw other generations enter into where when you have young children, you just don't understand pop culture anymore. No. You're out of the game. Yes. Like I've seen like all of game of Thrones and I've have seen you? Bojack Horseman. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. I watched the first episode of the Mandalorian the other day, but like, uh, you know, I've watched the lighthouse, but like I've seen like 10 things like, you know, so, and it's just like, I could either watch TV and, or I could write books. Like that's just what it boiled down to in my sure. life. I could play video games or I could write books, you know, and I didn't want to give up reading because I felt like, I just like looked at the math of it. It's like, if I have so many hours, like I can't be a writer unless I read, I don't feel. Mm-hmm. And I could be a writer without watching television. So sure. even though, you know, I'll watch, like if I'm trying to write a screenplay, every once in a while I'll be working on screenplays. So at that point I'll start watching movies. I'll just really try to binge and catch up. And I won't read so much, but you know, generally speaking, like there's, there is no, the only way that I can handle the schedule is like, I just call the schedule as much as possible. Sure. And just, I pull, uh, what Hyatt talks about is he, you know, he kind of, in that book, he discusses like you put every activity into one of these four zones and he's, you know, there's like things you don't have a passion for things you don't, it's, it's like passion and proficiency. Like, so either you don't have passion and you don't have proficiency. Well, you just stop doing those things as much as possible. Or maybe you've got like a passion for something, but you don't have proficiency. So, well, in that case, you know, that he calls your, um, distraction zone, <laughs> you know, so sure. it's like things you like doing, but you shouldn't be doing them. Um, and he's talking about it all in a very business context, but it's true in, in, you know, in, in other respects. And the other thing, you know, it's just like, you know, what's distracting you. Um, and I just found like, if I want to write books, I just can't watch, I can't be up on TV and you, you know, I, I just can't be part of that conversation. I can't go on social media hardly at all. I, that's that's actually the note I just made to myself. I was feeling convicted and guilty, so I wrote down Nathan cut down on social media in my book. Yeah, <laughs> because I waste I waste far too much time checking social media for really very little reward. That's the thing. Like, I mean, I don't. I, I'm not. I still like get sucked into it, but like, I just try as much as possible to be mindful of what I'm getting sucked into. And every once in a while, I have to just reset. You know, like I have to like go into Ken mode and reset what I'm doing because I just am getting overwhelmed. And what I'll find is that invariably I've gotten like a systems creep where I've started watching TV or I've started playing games late at night or I've started like checking social media. I put it back on my phone and now I got to take it off my phone. You know what I mean? Like, or I'm just yep. checking email too much or like I just find like if I just actually catalog what I'm doing, like I'll literally write on a piece of paper, what am I doing in a day? Like if I find myself doing something, I'll write it down on a piece of paper. And then at the end of the day, I'll look at like what I did in the day and it's depressing, you know? And I'll like literally like look and like, well, where did I make money? Like, (laughs) or like, did I produce something, even if I didn't make money, like did I produce like something of value to the world or to even just myself? Yeah. Um, And it's, you know, 
and, and often it so much of the stuff is just like stuff you get sucked into doing because you have a, in the habit of it or, or whatever or it's just easier to do it or you're just tired and you don't have the willpower to resist it or whatever very good point but I find like just cataloging I don't know like what do you find like works well well you know I gave this some thought anticipating that we were going to have a, a chance to chat about it and I have found only because of my schedule, my work schedule, and the consistency of it over the course of four-month chunks, that it, it's kind of fluid. Here's what really works for me, and I cannot recommend it because I am a zombie and <laughs> who's, who, who needs to eat brains because he has none of his own. Uh, I find that I have to get up early in the morning now to get work done. Uh, our mutual friend Mark Sampson says that he wants to spend the best part of his time in the day when he's fresh and he's eager. We're making literature. So I get up at six o'clock or sometimes earlier and then I write until seven o'clock when I have to start making breakfast. And that sounds like a little thing, but it's very difficult some days to wake up at six o'clock and say, well, we're going to go sit at the computer and hopefully come up with something before I have to plop the porridge into the uh, pressure cooker. Anyway, I was doing that exact same thing in those same hours almost. And I I fell out of it, but I'm trying to get back into it. But when I was in it, um, it was going great. It was way better. Now I'm, I'm out of it. And I'm trying to get back into it because I'm just having, I find it so much harder and you fall into the trap. What I've fallen into lately is the trap of feeling like, oh, I just should stay up longer. It's like, no, I should just go to sleep earlier and get up earlier because then at least. That's my solution. Yeah. And 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 you're, I think you're a hundred percent right. Like I was doing that and it was working great. And I just stopped, I just got out of the habit because I was staying up too late. But that's, but that's five hours in the working week. Right there. So I can't say that. fresh hours, like you say, like when your mind's like good. It takes me a minute to to wake up in the morning. I I genuinely have to have coffee ready to go because I am not a morning person by nature, but I've become one by by virtue of having children. Then I'll take my lunch hour at work, like the time I actually give myself to eat lunch. Usually it's at the computer anyway, but I'll try to give myself 15 uh, 15 minutes to a half an hour to write then. Just just write down whatever I'm thinking or planning. It's not really productive work, but it's like planning, scheduling work, where I'm thinking of outlining the next poem I want to write or what's the next what's the next concept I want to think about or something like this. That sounds so technical. I just well, let's just talk a bit more about that though and get more technical. So you because because sure. you talk about outlining. So I found this is a really uh, a powerful thing for me too is I'll, as I've really gone into outlining in the sure. n- last few number of years, and I found that it has been it has helped me immensely. Uh, I so, swear by outlining. I, it's just uh, outlining and cussing around here. <laughs> so can you talk a bit about how you would outline a poem? Uh, okay, in general so sense? or even just maybe so use an example if you don't with, mind. With my with my last book, um, with uh, a very special episode, uh, what I would do is because about half of the poems are parody poems in that they write back to canonical, well-established poems you have to memorize if you're going to grade school, uh, I would take that poem and I would break it down uh, syllable by syllable, um, rhyme by rhyme, and that would be the way I'd outline for my response so it could emulate, literally fill in the spaces of the metrical construction of the previous work. So that's what I called outlining for those ones. There's a poem in my collection called uh, uh, The Church of, Ar- of Archie. The Church of Archie is a, a line-by-line, syllable-by-syllable, stress by unstressed uh, rewriting of The Shield of Achilles by W.H. Auden. And it's uh, it's a pretty ambitious poem. Like W.H. Auden didn't joke around, and uh, I didn't want to either. So I wrote a silly poem about very religious comic books that I had to read as a child. And I, and I just, the outline was, here's what Auden did. I'm going to break it down into its component parts. Here's what I'm going to do in response as a way to like, to put on his suit and walk around with it for a while. So that was the outline for that. Now, Um, when people hear me talk about that kind of thing, uh, they, they have these objections. And one of the objections is, well, it sounds like you, 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 I'm asking you how to save time. You're telling me do more work. But yep. it actually saves you quite a lot of time, doesn't it? Sure. And you can do it when you're ti- when you've only got 15 minutes. Yep. And it, like it doesn't require the same amount of focus to write an outline nope. as to say it does to write those lines. It also eases my anxiety that if I if I start writing something, I'll never get to the end of it. 
I have a plan. And even if the plan changes, at least I can calm myself down, take deep breathing techniques to get to the end of my plan. Uh, so I'm telling you, and I tell my students, I don't want to sound so dogmatic as I am right now, but outlining is the only way to achieve your goals. It doesn't sound romantic, and students always make the wrinkly nose slash eye-rolling face when I tell them this, but it is um, – take it from this middle-aged Caucasian male. This is the way to get your work done. <laughs> yeah, well. But then – but then for other things, the outlining process is, is way different. Because the last book was a work of parody, I found that was the most effective way to outline. But for my next book, which is, uh, which is responding to an entirely different um, set of occasions of the 90s, um, I'm out- outlining by doing extensive research and, and just noting what I want to make sure I make a point of in the process of, of writing. So my outlines will range for one poem will range between one and 10 pages and including footnotes and, and notes and citations. Cause I'm very fastidious about that kind of thing. Just so I know that I know what I'm talking about. And then from that point on, I can feel confident that I have somewhere to go and that I know how to get there. So how do you actually get like blocks of time to put in like focused, intensive work on a project on a a poem or something. So for, I'm looking at your book and looking at Ode to Madonna. So, yep. so this is on page uh, 29. Uh, and there's a, <laughs> there's you. a stanza here. I was just reading this, uh, the other day and I noticed the stanza. So here's what the stanza is. This is, this is, um, <laughs> now if, if you're out there and you're listening and you're not a poet or you don't have a lot of facility with poetry, let me just tell you, like, take my word for it. This stanza I'm about to read is incredibly complicated and would be very difficult to write. <laughs> uh, so in Ode to Madonna, there's a stanza here that, you know, that reads, Could you conceive how a rehearsal is terminated by the premiere recital? Could you, in a role reversal, recite live rather than evil? That is a really dense stanza. And you've got a lot of that kind of thing uh, happening in terms of like... Uh, you know, how the patterning is, is operating, you know, uh, and I look at that, maybe I'm wrong. Like I look at that and I think I could not have written that poem or that stanza without really having like a focused block of time. Okay. So, so is that I the case? Res- I could respond specifically to you on this specific stanza. In fact, I could even show you drafts of this stanza, uh, to, to, to place into a context. I take an incredibly long time to write something. It, I cannot write a poem in the morning in the block of time I just told you. I can't write a poem before I have my first bowel movement. There are people who can write on the train and come up with really brilliant poetry. I can't. It takes me a long time. Well, so, I would think you at least need a desk to put out like your papers <laughs> and your notes because you got to figure out where the stresses go. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like It's very involved what you're doing. No, that, that stanza right there comes from, okay, uh, like I'm, a, I'm also a kind of minorly obsessed with Vladimir Nabokov. People call him Nabokov. Anyway, this poem is based upon his poem, Ode to a Model. And he, like me, I suspect, have some kind of mental issues that are akin to OCD. <laughs> I don't want to make light of it, but, but I certainly have mm. some aspects of my brain that enjoy patterns and structures more than the average person's brain does. And so that stanza is patterned on his stanza that is also similarly um, particular and persnickety. But I decided I was going to uh, take him up one notch and show old Vladimir how it's done. So that stanza specifically took at least two or three different versions. And I specifically fought with the last two lines because I wanted to find a way to make it sound flip and casual but also, upon closer inspection, reveal that there is a lot of uh, a lot of mechanics cranking beneath it. And so I'm glad you picked it out because I'm mm-hmm. glad that you thought it worked. I only see the effort. I don't see the effect very well. And so thank you, John. Well, you're <laughs> for, welcome. But like, on that one. you know, I, I, I can um, I can like people think because I don't um, do a lot of it. Mm-hmm. That I like can't do a lot of it, this kind of writing, um, and I'm not as good as it as you would be. But like, like I can do it, and I can recognize it, and uh, yeah. I find that it's it, it, people really don't understand what goes in writing four lines like that. 
And like, you know, it's, that would be a a long, hard slog. So how do you do it? Are you just doing drafts like in your time you have, or are you finding like big blocks somehow? I am, I'm telling you that I am a drafter. I, again, because I mentioned earlier, insecurity slash, uh, uh, anxiety issue. I need draft. I need to get to the end of something knowing that no one will ever have to see it. Like Jonathan will never have to look at this poem in its first, second or third incarnation if I don't want him to. And then, um, then I keep revising and gives me time to think and rethink. But, but what I just described to you is time. And, and that kind of time is, is very limited now because of, uh, my real life and, and, life-making obligations. So so time for me, it comes down to, I just described five hours in a, in a week. That's the time that I give myself to do the, uh, the, the hard labor of producing that kind of nonsense. And, and the truth is too, and this is the reason why I'm really stuck writing poetry right now, is that I find constraint, like you just described in that stanza, very, very liberating. Um, I know it sounds anathema, especially to... Uh, to poets who are much more gifted than I am and more imaginative than I am, but I need to give myself constraint. And I look at time as one of those constraints and it sounds, that sounds mythical, but I say, if I only have an hour, this is where I want to get in that hour. And so, that, that's my drafting process. It sounds like a technique that you're using there, which is you're sort of outlining and planning in these shorter pieces of time. Yep. So that when you have longer pieces of time, you have, you're not just like, come, now you know what you got to do. 100%. And, like, and, so, and so what happens is that I, every now and then I'll get an evening because um, my children are very young and they'll be down by 7 o'clock. I'll get an evening where I have an hour or two, and that's where I get to go to town on these things. Because like you, I, I watch very few movies anymore. I, I, I haven't lifted a video game controller in 20 years. Um, and I, my friends will return my phone calls. Uh, I'm not sure if that one's <laughs> like you. But I, that's where I sit down and say, well, now I, got, now I have this much time. Um, and sometimes it's in front of the TV. It'll be perfectly honest. I just turn the TV on because I like the distraction, and it kind of takes my mind off of things. Um, and then I will complete whatever, whatever goal I set myself for that week or for that day or whatever. So I'm going to stop there and we'll come back, uh, to talk to Nathan more next week. Uh, so make sure you're subscribing. If you haven't already subscribed, let people know about this podcast, uh, get ready for the new uh, week's podcast next week, whether we have more with Nathan Duick, um, and keep writing the wrong way. Nathan!